Chuck and Julie, bringing you the truth straight up. I'm Julie Hayden. I'm an Emmy-winning former investigative reporter, a highly successful trial attorney, and publisher of a major Denver area newspaper. They've been partners as talk show hosts and in marriage as parents for over 10 years, providing thought-provoking information, opinion, and entertainment live, local, and interactive. Everyone's voice is always welcome on the Chuck and Julie Show. Well, hello, everyone. I'm speaking from the Palatial Newspaper Headquarters here in Denver, um, and it's the Chuck and Julie Show. Chuck uh, Bonniewell, Julie Hayden, True Straight Up, brought to you by americacitizenpress.com, a great conservative website. I mean, we really appreciate them. They always feature our podcast there. So if you ever miss us, you can listen to us there as well as chuckandjulie.com. I mean, also Dr. Julie McCallan at Denver Cynogenics. Okay, a lot going on today. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to be bringing in Fred Bivick. He's a friend. He's a lawyer. He was a defense attorney. He was a prosecutor. Get his take on the goings-ons in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, and we'll all try to do a little bit of a tea leave reading. But first, wanted to bring in Ben. Ben Murray, we've had been on before. He's a great um, fiscal policy director at the Independence Institute. Um, and he you can find him always in Complete Colorado. He does a lot of good work there. But Ben, um, first off, welcome to the show. Thank you once again for your time. Appreciate it. Hey, Julie, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, what wanted to start off with, um, you had a great column up, basically, the way I'm putting it, is sort of highlighting the hypocrisy, the elitism, just the awfulness, that's my word, not yours, of Jared Polis saying, oh, look at my, my new budget. I'm spending all of your tax dollars to help all the small businesses that I destroyed with my unconstitutional lockdowns in the first place. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the impact, but you guys at the Independence Institute actually did a study on the impact. And why don't we maybe start by having you tell folks just how bad it was for a lot of small businesses in Colorado? Yeah. Uh, so we, we launched an economic study. We started doing early, early this year. Um, we made a decision a little over a year ago, last October or so, to, to do this. Because what I foresaw was that after causing a lot of pain and hardship in the Colorado economy, I foresaw Governor Polis and, and Colorado Democrats coming back around this time um, 2021 and 2022 legislative session and saying, oh, look how look how the pandemic has hurt small businesses. Look how it's hurt minorities and low-income people. And we need now need to step in as the saviors, big government, and bail everyone out. And then, you know, and I thought, you know what, we need to study this and be able to preempt that argument and be, be able to point out that it wasn't COVID, but government that has hurt so many people's lives. Now, look, COVID has hurt people's lives too. Let make no mistake about it. People have died of COVID. Um, and I'm sure that there would have been some economic pain if government had done nothing, right? But what our data has shown, what our economic study has shown, and this is something that was conducted by a PhD economist, one of our senior fellows, Paul Prentice, along with uh, a research assistant from the University of Chicago, who, who's studying economics at the University of Chicago. So two very bright people. And what it's shown is, is these mandates have, number one, they've hurt small businesses um, far disproportionately to large corporations and large businesses. Right. They've hurt minorities and they've hurt low-income people. Um, so I'll give you a statistic and then I'll okay. stop and let you let you say what you want to say from there. But okay. um, the number of small businesses in Colorado from before the pandemic to this summer when, when we concluded our study um, declined by about 43%. Wow. Whoa. That's... Whoa. 
43%. I would say now in a typical year, let me, that's maybe try to put this in perspective. I would imagine that you would maybe even see increases in small businesses. So, I mean, small businesses seem to me to be kind of growing constantly. Do you have, I mean, I, maybe you don't know this, but any sense of perspective wise, just what we would see. Well, was, that, was that a net figure? I mean, is that the, that was a net figure. So look, out of business, percent went out of business, but 12% or 15% joined in, or is it really with just net, net, 43% less small businesses? Okay. It's net. So what you see any year is you see thousands of businesses filing to open with the state and filing that they've shut their doors with the state. I mean, there's there's, you know, fluctuation both ways every year. But what you saw is that there are 43 percent fewer small businesses as of June this summer versus pre pandemic. Wow. Now, let me give you another one. That's that's if you think that's astounding. Listen to this. We also looked over the exact same time frame that we gave that statistic. We looked at the valuations, the stock, stock valuations of the Fortune 500 companies that are located in Colorado. Now, obviously, that fluctuates day by day, but at the, at the, at the point in time when we finalized their data, the, the, the Fortune 500 companies on average were worth 61.4% more than they were, not at the bottom of the pandemic, than they were pre-pandemic. Wow. Wait, so let's get this in perspective. So there are 43% fewer small businesses in Colorado today, or when you finish the study, than the were at the beginning of the pandemic. Meanwhile, the richest of the rich increased their wealth 61%, roughly. This, the valuations of the Fortune 500 companies in Colorado increased by 61%. Wow. How many government policies' net worth go up, you know? I, I, we don't have that data, but it would be interesting. Maybe we could look at his tax returns. Oh, wait, we can't look at it his filing, but You know what? But it, but, it, but it stands to reason that wealthy people, they own assets, right? right. Um, they own a lot more assets than people who are living paycheck to paycheck or can only maybe buy a few assets with every paycheck, right? Someone like Governor Polis, I'm sure, owns a lot of assets. Well, assets have done very, very well, right? I mean, when we talk about the valuation of Fortune 500 companies, we're talking about the value of the S&P 500. We all know that the value of the S&P 500 has done very, very well over this time frame, while low-income people, minorities, and small businesses have, have suffered. Right. Well, what in about- addition to that as a practical matter, I mean, if you owned a small hardware store, the state shuts you down. If you were Walmart or anyone else, you continue to business. So, it basically, it squashed the big guy's competition, which is what they love the very best. That's exactly right. And I think what you just said probably d- describes a lot of the reason for, for why we've seen this disparate impact between large corporations and small businesses. Look, if you're a little mom and pop clothing boutique in downtown somewhere, Colorado, yeah. then Governor Polis said, oh, you're not allowed to operate. You're not essential. So now as a consumer, if I want to go buy clothing, well, I can't go to my favorite mom and pop clothing store down the road because Governor Polis has decided they weren't essential. Right. Them providing for their families wasn't essential. But if I, you know, now I got to buy a new shirt, so I'm going to have to go to Walmart instead, or I'm right. going to have to go to Target instead. Right. You know. Well, and it's. And, well, and, we do know that liquor stores turned out to be essential, and and pot uh, shops turned out to be essential. Yeah, we. And pot shop. Yeah. Right. Well, you and, ease and, your pain and, if you had a small business. 
Oh, that's right. Okay, I'm sorry. But, well, you know, and here's the thing on top of it, too, that I, again, you know, channeling my inner Michael Tao to point out all of this for a virus that did not, that 99.99999% people recovered from just fine. This wasn't Ebola. This wasn't something where, well, you know, we were saving billions and billions of lives. We had no choice but to do it. You know, Ben, I, I mean, I was cynical before. Well, let me ask this. Well, I, I want to put a little pushback that you said the COVID would naturally have caused some economic damage regardless, but did it damage Sweden? I mean, you know, they basically said, no, we're not closing down. We're not locking down. We're not doing anything. And they well, seem look, to have I gone mean, through the thing. Whole thing I, just I'm assu- when I say that our study doesn't, doesn't investigate that I'm making that assumption and it's based on yeah. this, right? Mm-hmm. Early on in the pandemic, we didn't know, nobody knew even, you know, Nobody knew how deadly it was going to be. Nobody knew what it was going to look like. We didn't know if it was going to be another, you know, SARS or something that is, was more deadly, right? Only more contagious. We didn't know. So I suspect, I mean, again, I'm just guessing you, you can't, this, it, it didn't play out this way. So you can't know what would have happened. But I suspect that for a couple of weeks or even a month or some amount of time, people on their own, even without government mandates, would have chosen to go out a little bit less, to shop a little, you know what I mean? To, to, to make I think it's fair. Right. Uh, I, I know I certainly did. I'm not really worried about the pandemic and the virus for myself now because I understand the data. Um, but early on, I'll be honest, I was a little worried. I went and stocked up on some food. I didn't know what it was going to. No, February, I think that's, I didn't know what it. Was I think that's become. fair, Ben. And I and I think we're talking with Ben Murray, fiscal policy director of the Independence Institute, about a study they did on the impact that this had, the pandemic had on small businesses. And and it goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning of all of this: that government, not just polis, but but Democrat governors and Democrat legislators were picking winners and losers. And I think the winners. I think and, that's and so the big mayors and, and uh, health departments and everyone else. So I, I think I think that's that's important, right? Is it's number one is we were very careful in this study to not to not go in make a, a moral judgment about whether or not lockdowns were necessary, right? Okay. That just wasn't the purpose of this study. Right. It was an economic study. Now I'm sure we all have our opinions on whether or not it was, the, the decisions that were made were prudent, but the focus of the study was just to go okay these mandates and these lockdowns were implemented. So be it. What were the consequences of that? Right. 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 And, and, we're, and we're careful to point out that, look, COVID didn't lock down the economy. Governments locked down the economy. Right. Governor Polis locked down the economy, specifically in Colorado. Right. And, and what, what, were the co- what, what were the outcomes of that? What were the adverse incomes, or, um, at different income levels, different, different um, racial groups? So here's another statistic from this study. The percentage of Coloradans with a household income under 75,000 who were working dropped to less than 50% in the spring of 2020, right? While for those households making over $75,000, employment remained steady. Wow. So, so, so what we saw is part of the, part of, you know, Colorado on the front range, we're a pretty wealthy state. I mean, when you look at the front range, Boulder, Denver, Longmont, you know, and most of the people in that economy in the state, uh, apart from some of the small, but, but a lot of the people who I think vote for these policies and want the mandates and the lockdowns, you know, they they just got to go work from home. Exactly. They're professionals and, and, exactly. and they're in that above $75,000 a year household income group where employment remained steady for them. Their life was good. Maybe they got some stimulus checks. Their stock portfolios went up 40% in a year, you know? Great. No big deal. Right. 
so it's, there was no cost to them to um, to shut down everybody else's life and everybody else's livelihood. People out on the on the on the Western Slope or this or that or some small business, right? right. Why you know it it didn't it didn't necessarily economically what we found. Now look, we're looking at statistics here. Right, there are right. always outliers. There maybe there was some lawyer who did get 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 furloughed somewhere. I don't know, right? But statistically speaking, in general, higher income people didn't feel this really. I mean, it was like it was well, like this for know, a moment, and they're just right back to to normals with the data yeah, show. To, to your point, I traveled the entire state uh, this summer uh, fighting against your boss um, <laughs> and trying to opt out of the primary. Um, and it was extraordinary to go to Northeast Colorado, to go to Southeast Colorado, to go to all the areas that are not the front range. And the economic hurt was enormous. Once Absolutely. you got to, you know, to Colorado Springs and everything else, they were just doing great. Just yeah. doing and great. Look, there, there are obviously examples of small business closures in the Springs and in Denver and this and that. Right. But, you know, in general, we really saw the pain borne out in low-income communities and, um, sorry, low-income households, low-income individuals and minorities, actually. So, so one thing the study looked at was industry by industry impact from these lockdowns. And by far, the industry that was hit hardest in Colorado was, surprise, you know, no surprise here, uh, leisure and hospitality. Right. Well, what minor, oh, yeah. which, which um, minority group in Colorado is by far most represented in terms of employment in that industry. Hispanic? Hispanics. Hispanics are the largest minority group in Colorado. Right. And 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 they're the ones who are working in the industry that that by far right. was hurt the most by Polis's lockdowns. Right. Well, and let me ask you this also, because I know at the paper, we, we saw it. I mean, we felt it because we had several clients who uh, there were two, some of who just closed their doors and said, I can't even begin to contemplate going through this. Others who tried and then eventually had to close their doors. And I mean, did you look at that? I would think that there are probably a lot of small businesses that not only did they just have to close, but they probably went through just about everything they had trying to stay open, right? Because it's like, we're open, we're not, we're open, we're not. We can, I mean, it was such a mess the way they handled it that I think if you were a small business, at least I know anecdotally, I've talked to some people who are like, I got nothing left. I tried as long as I could to tread water. And, and finally, I had nothing left. And, and now we're sunk. Did you see that at all? Yeah, we, we did in the data. But okay. we also looked at it anecdotally a little bit. So the author of the study, he interviewed a small business who, who preferred to remain anonymous but this was a small business owner. Um, he and his wife had you know, poured everything into their small business. She was Asian. He was Hispanic, actually. And so they're minorities. And they've been running this business for nearly a decade. Uh, they'd even sold their house and moved into an apartment to invest more into their business. They were doing very well leading up to the pandemic. But they were deemed non-essential. And, and, they, and they had to close their doors. And they, you know, they actually tried to stay open. And um, they faced fines of $15,000 a day. Of course, of course they did, right? Because it's like we're gonna we're gonna bury. Well, let me ask you this, and moving sort of to the second part of your column, which I also loved. Sort of, you said, you know, it's kind of like Polis. He's like the arsonist who now says, "Oh, I'm the firefighter. Trust me, trust me." Right? So now right. he's saying, "Oh no, I'm the hero. I'm I'm saving all of you small businesses that managed to survive. I'm going to give you all this money." Um, talk about that a little bit, because he's trying to say, "Oh no, I'm the hero for small business." Right. So now he wants to jump in and in and, and, and his budget, he's earmarked money for 
um, fee relief, for example. Um, so one of the things I, I point out in my in my article, I, ironically, he he's waived the fee, which you know you have to budget that because that's money you're not going to get. So that's in his budget; it's, it's baked in there. Waived the fee for starting a new business, and I say. Well, right. This is going to really come in handy for all the businesses that want to give it a second shot after Polis forced them to close down. Right. You know, and yeah, I'm not talking about, talking about temporary closures. I'm talking about people who had to permanently shut down their business. Right. You know, so great that, you know, after after you forced me to go out of business and go bankrupt. So the, the example I just gave from our study that 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 couple, they had to file bankruptcy. They lost everything. Yeah. So let's say they decide they want to give it a second shot and shot and start their start their business again. Uh, Lord Polis has been so gracious as to waive the fee for starting up their business again. Isn't that nice? What, what's waiving? Yeah. What fee is there for starting up a new business? Yeah, there, there's a fee you have to pay to the state to, to register as a as a as a business. As a new business. Oh, and imagine it doesn't probably come close to the amount of money that these people lost. You know, maybe let me ask you about this too. Meanwhile, I saw. I mean, Polis he still has a slush fund, um, and I saw his former chief of staff. I might say his name wrong. Rick Palacio, I think. Mm-hmm. So he made eighty. $85,000 Paul has paid him our dollars for $85,000. He, he quit being the chief of staff. So now he could be paid to advise Polis on COVID, right? So he's getting paid. And I'm, I'm guessing he didn't say, hey, I know maybe that's just open up all the small businesses that we close. That would be my guess. And, you know, that only took five minutes. Well, so I don't need $5,000. Four months. Yeah. He employed four months and he quit and he gets an $85,000 bailout uh, for advising polis in the future i mean it's just it is so outrageous uh but uh i guess we're used to it by now no we're not no we're not you know and, and i don't know the yes, details of, of, of that particular circumstance um but you know had amendment 78 passed a lot of this right um slush fund expenditures would have would have been uh taken care of right, right? that would it would that that amendment would have forced um those decisions into the hands of the legislature which look it's a democrat controlled legislature um, but at least uh, the people of Colorado would have had a little bit more con- control by way of their representatives. Right. Well, what about this in terms of, um, so now, okay, Polis isn't in charge of the supply chain. I get that, but we still have Democrat policies under Biden. So if you're a small business that has managed to survive so far, you're still, I think, getting screwed. I was reading a story in the Denver Post today about some guy who made beef jerky who had to finally close his business. He said, I just can't get the stuff I need, the supply. And the lady who does my hair is like, I'm trying to get hair color from Germany. She's like, I don't speak German. It's been a nightmare. I mean, have you guys any sense on, again, how Democrat policies, not only did they close everybody down, not everybody, but almost half, right? Um, Now they're making it difficult to go forward. Yeah. So the study itself just looks at the data. It's saying, here are the outcomes, just looking at the data. It doesn't necessarily like it draw it draws some conclusions in terms of you know we know that if 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 you force businesses to shut down that's going to hurt them, yeah. um, but a lot of what the study does is simply go it's, it's sort of ambivalent towards whether or not things were necessary this or that it's just like okay. look this is this is where we are now because of what was done, right? Um, but I connect some of the dots in my article, right? So um, you know look at the CARES Act. Do you remember when Congress passed the CARES Act right. to begin the pandemic? I was working in the United States Senate at that time. I was advising Senator Cruz. I was his budget staffer, tax staffer. So I was I was advising Senator Cruz while through that bill. Okay. Um, you know, letting him know what's in it, advising him on whether or not we should support certain provisions. After Congress passed the CARES Act, they they included some tax provisions. 
And those tax provisions were designed to help businesses weather the pandemic, right? The idea was, look, if governments are going to tell you you can't operate your business, then it's only fair that they fill in the gap for you, right? Mm -hmm. So under normal circumstances, somebody like Senator Cruz would never support like a massive bailout bill like the CARES Act. Um, But he said, look, I'm going to support this because um, these businesses didn't do anything wrong. The government is saying the public, by way of their elected representatives, are saying you're not allowed to operate your business. If the public is going to say you're not allowed to operate your business, then the public should step in and and and, and fill in for you know fill in the financial gap for you. And some of these tax provisions they reduced federal revenues, which costs the federal government money, right? Um, because they were intended to let businesses keep more of their own tax money, kind of keep more of their own right. money getting through the pandemic. Right. You may remember that in 2020 the Democrat-controlled legislature here in Colorado passed House Bill 1420. What House Bill 1420 did in part was decouple Colorado tax tax code, the Colorado tax code, from some of those CARES Act provisions that were intended to provide relief to small businesses. So basically the Colorado legislature said, you can't take take advantage of those tax provisions, those tax relief provisions um, at the state level. Okay. Now that increased state revenues that gave the state a little bit more money to work with some of that money they pocketed and some of that money they used to extend the earned income tax credit to illegal aliens. Oh, there, that's good. That's good. That's good. So, and governor Polo signed that bill. So governor Polo signs this bill to take away tax relief from small businesses that Congress gave them, right? At least take it away at the state level. And now he wants to step in and do a hundred million dollars in fee relief for, for, for small businesses. And he wants to act like he's the hero. Right, right. No, I, I mean, it is just, it, it's appalling. You know what? Let me just a couple more questions for you, Ben. Now, I read this in Complete Colorado because I look at Complete Colorado. I mean, I'm assuming you sent the study out to other news organizations. I mean, a 43% decrease in this number of small businesses. I mean, have has everybody been calling you saying, oh my God, Ben, you got to explain this to us. We thought Governor Polis was a hero and it looks like maybe he isn't. I mean, I'm yeah, assuming you got interviews. Sun, the Colorado politics to the Denver Post. All right, all you're probably it. lined up to do interviews with them, right? You know what? I, I sent amazed you had time for us. I mean, it I, was know, all I, I sent out a press release. You would think this would have gotten more traction. I sent out a press release to all the major Colorado newspapers, including the Denver Post and the Sun, and um, those outlets didn't respond to me. In fact, um, in the case of the Denver Post, I followed up personally with several of the writers and their editors. Not a, not a word. Um, wow. The only major outlet in Colorado that, that published on this, and they did a very good job, by the way, was the Gazette. Yeah. So you can go and read about this in the Gazette. Um, you know, in the Gazette, I forget the wording they use, but they said something to the effect of, of every single legislature should be required. Every single legislator in Colorado should be required to read this report. And I, and I agree. I agree. Well, I agree too. Again, you know, speaking as a small business, right. It's like, it's been hard, you know, people, and it's, it's better now, but I think for, like you said, your heart just breaks for the companies. And we know some of them that they're just like, can't do it. You know, we're, we're closed. We're closed for good. Not only that, we don't have anything left to, to start over with. I mean, it's just, it, it, and, and in the meantime, as you pointed out, the fortune 500 companies, their value increased 61%. And I think, I, I think that anyone who thinks, oh, that was just coincidence is is not living in the right, you know, it doesn't have their head. Well, but Paul, nonetheless, for all of that, Paulus is considered a mortal lock on re-election. Mm. Um, yes. Mortal lock on re-election. You're right. Because he's going to have $40 million to ballot harvest. 
and he'll ballot harvest the hell out of all the people he just screwed over. Well, all those Hispanics. Unfortunately, I, unfortunately I, I don't think that a lot of voters have connected the dots on these things. And it's yeah. unfortunate that the media won't do its job and report on it. Yeah. Um, the Denver well, they're doing their job. They're well, doing yeah. their job. <laughs> they view their job as ensuring a left-wing Democratic majority for the rest of our rest of Colorado's future. They're doing their job. It's just not a job in the public service. Well, that's, you know, that's the problem. And the De- What's the last time the Denver Post did anything in the public service? Well, <laughs> honestly, what's the last you know, time well, they did anything in the public service? I would, re- I'd be, I would be uh, remiss I if I, I would be remiss if I did not bring up one interest, very interesting statistic that we found in our study. Now, we, we, it wasn't really the task of the study to evaluate whether or not we should have done X, Y, and Z to respond to the pandemic. The main, the main goal of the study, like I said, was just to look at the outcomes from, from, a, from a data-driven perspective. But right. what we did do is we said, um, let's go ahead and just look at the data and, and show what, show, see whether or not there was a, a, a correlation between lockdowns and um, health outcomes, death rates from ah. COVID, right? In other words, did states that were more, did states that were more stringent in their lockdowns see fewer COVID deaths? Um, and states that were less stringent see more COVID deaths. That's what we were trying to find out. And we just looked, purely looked at the data on it. And what we found is that there was no statistically significant relationship between stringency of lockdowns and COVID deaths. If you looked at the, you can look at it in the report, the, 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 the scatter plot on it was just like all over the map. Right. Um, so you had strict states that saw higher COVID deaths. You saw not strict states that had high COVID deaths. I mean, it, it was just all over the place. There was no, there should have been a linear relationship um, if there was, a, if, if, if strict lockdowns actually lower death rates. And what right. we found is there was actually absolutely no statistically significant relationship. So, which is the, the, the truly tragic part of all of this. And thank God all those public health officials are demanding that Polis implement another vax man, you know, a mask mandate and lock down people again. So, you know, Ben, thank you yeah, for doing well, this. I wrote an editorial or the editorial board wrote an editorial saying um, next time they tell 15 days to flatten the curve, um, shouldn't believe it too much. Um, ben, thank you for the work that you do. And, and I really that's like you- right. that, That's really interesting work. I mean, it, it's just, uh, and I'll echo the uh, Colorado politics. Every legislator should be required to read it. Although I can guarantee you that all the Democrats and most of the Republicans uh, would get nothing out of it. Um, because they don't really care, no. unfortunately. Yeah. You know, they, well, thanks again. We appreciate you having on, and I'll keep up the good work. Wait, wait let me finish. Like, Go ahead. Uh, can I have a last word? Yep. Democrats sure. love to have, have loved to talk about following the data and the science. Yeah. They want to follow oh, the data. Yeah. They need to read this study. But the fact of the matter is, is they've never cared about the data. They care about power. Um, yes. If you want to read the yes. full study, you can go to i2i.org. That's our website, i2i.org. Um, or you can read more of our stuff um, on page two.completecolorado.com or just go to completecolorado.com. So all right. Hey, and all of our comment people are thanking you, Ben. So thank you too for your time and the work that you do. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Keep all up right. good work, Ben. Ben Murray Thanks. there. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I can read real quick before we get to, um, to, to Fred here. I mean, just people are talking about, you know, just what a, what a bunch of nonsense it is. It's sick. And Sandra's like, how do we get the word out there? Um, yeah, it's, 
It needs to. I mean, I mean, 43 percent. And that, that's astonishing. I mean, and it's and again, and behind every less business, I mean, there's a there's a tragic, heartbreaking story, Chuck. You know, I mean, these are people who put their life savings. These aren't Amazons. These aren't Walmarts. These are small businesses, family owned businesses who've been working hard. And for for what their study shows, absolutely no reason it was destroyed. While the bigger well, companies. Tell me, tell me. Who represents small businesses in Colorado? I mean, I know there are a couple organizations, but really they have no economic power. No. I mean, small businesses are, are, are the red-headed, left-handed stepchild of, of government. Well, I mean, and guys, they have think no back. one to advocate for them. And think back to the time. Remember when he had all the, uh, there's no other word for it, but the evil health department, people going there and putting padlocks in the doors of small businesses that said, no, I have to stay open. I've got nothing to lose by staying open and finding them. Like Ben was talking, that example being fined $15,000 a day for nothing, all for nothing. And then Polis wants to turn around and say, hey, I'm the hero. Everybody applaud me. Oh, meanwhile, I'm going to give my chief of staff $85,000 to tell me how to screw you all over some more. So it's just uh, gets me riled up. Um, hey, so we're going to switch. Your government working for you. There you go. Um, we're going to switch gears now. There's been a lot going on in the um, Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And we thought we'd bring on, um, I think, Fred, I see you there in the waiting room. So if you want to go ahead and turn your camera on and unmute yourself. Um, we've got our friend and attorney, um, Fred Bibbitt, coming on. He was both the prosecutor and he was a, a he is now a defense attorney. And we thought we'd get his take. Are you are you there, Fred? I'm here. Okay. My, uh, someone's got me locked out of the video. I think. Oh, okay. That's okay. That's hey, Thomas. Thomas, if you could let Fred in, <laughs> our producer. Otherwise, it gets too too crowded on the video. Hey, Fred. Thank you for your time. Hi. Hey, hey. We, have, we have an eagle like that. Like, I like the eagle in your back. We have an eagle like that at our oh, house. Do you? Is yours? Is yours? A, ours is a Michelangelo Renoir. Is it? Model? Actually, yeah. I took this from your house last time I was there. <laughs> Okay, so hey, the last I heard in the Rittenhouse trial, jury still deliberating. Um, they had asked to see video. They were looking at the video of the the Groys Kreutz. He's the guy who was shot, who was pointing the gun at, at Rittenhouse and was shot but survived. And then they wanted to see this controversial drone video. Let me kind of right. jump into it. I personally was not that surprised that they wanted to see video. Every trial I've covered, if there's video, the jurors always want to look at it again. What's your take on that? And should we be freaking out? I mean, how do you read the tea leaves, I guess? You know, I, I thought this morning they were asking for the drone video first, weren't they? Did they? And I yeah. had to work today. Yeah. I've been spending too much time on the Rittenhouse trial, so Maureen made I... me come back to work. <laughs> um, but the video, it seems to me, this whole case is told in the video. Right. It, why it went on so long, well, I'm sure the prosecutors felt they had to prove it and overprove it. I'm sure they're trying to make a statement. You know, we can't allow this sort of, if it is vigilantism, certainly we want to discourage this sort of activity by people like Kyle Rittenhouse. But well, um, really what happened is that their case fell apart in the middle of the trial did. with cups. And so they did, so then they came up with this, this uh, new thing that, that, uh, <clears throat> Provocation. House had had provoked it by pointing his gun at lots of people, um, and then that's what they used the drone footage for. What's interesting today is um, their motion for a mistrial without prejudice, saying they gave him the wrong file, a much more uh, compressed one, and everything else. And what was interesting about that, the judge 
the dumb um, defense attorneys, they've been been graded sometimes and awful at sometimes, but their <laughs> awfulness, they ask for a, a mistrial without prejudice. Well, the, 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 the prosecution should have jumped up and down and said, yes, yes, that'd be perfect. <laughs> uh, we'd love that. We'd love that. And we'd we try everything. But luckily, the judge yeah. saved him and said, okay, well, I'll consider that after the verdicts come in. So sure. that gives him the, and he's making it clear, he's going to do a mistrial if they get, I'm not sure it'll be with prejudice or without prejudice, but he's going to do a mistrial if they convict him on some of the ones. Oh, I don't um, think so. Right. You think oh, so? Oh, yes, I promise Well, you. I think, you know, if, well, if he's, if he's convicted. Okay. Yes, yes. Well, if he's convicted, know. then the judge will go ahead and consider the mistrial motion. If he's acquitted, that's the end of it, or at least as far as the judge right. is concerned. It's right. the beginning of other right. things, I'm sure. Well, let me ask you, though, because people are going up and down and, and trying to, and I, I always think this is an interesting part of stuff, even though none of us know, the only people who know are the obviously the jury people. But what your sense on, so it's been two days in jury deliberations. Again, I don't think it's unusual that they ask to see the video. I don't think, given the whole nature of this case, that two days is a long time. But what do you think? If you're a defense attorney, are you freaking out right now? Or what, what's your read on it? <clears throat> well, I thought it'd be a much quicker verdict than this. Okay. I thought that the evidence of self-defense was very strong. I thought it would be, oh, maybe not two hours, but perhaps four hours. Now, in a high-profile case like this, the jury is very methodical. They're okay. probably reading all the jury instructions and discussing them in detail, more so than they would in a smaller trial. Uh, smaller trials, yeah, we get it. You know, We just look at the elements, and we sort of understand reasonable doubt. So here... I'm sure they're trying to be very methodical, but what's my, uh, I think it's 16 hours now that they've been out. Yeah. Yeah. Which as a defense attorney and maybe even as a prosecutor, I'm thinking maybe we're looking at a mistrial here. Yeah. Hung jury. Because kind of at thing. some point, at some point you've said everything there is to say, and then you're rehashing it. And we may have people who are entrenched on one side or the other. It could be, and I was thinking, uh, this morning, I thought they'd asked for the drone video, so I thought they well, maybe did they made up their they... minds. That was the first one, right? Right. So maybe they made up their minds on the you know the second shooting there with um, Rosenbaum and, um, right. and the others, and that they were just taking a look at the drone and to see if um, if he did have some way out of those cars. Didn't Kyle testify that he turned because he ran into those cars and there was right, no and he way was out. Cornered, he was sort of, cornered, basically. He, he was cornered, but then he, but then he does leave, doesn't he? He doesn't. Well, I think walk that back he over. was cornered. He was saying in part by the cars and the crowd, and right. then when the gunshots went off, I think he explained the cars dispersed. Let me ask you. We have a question from one of the listeners, and I wanted to ask you this too. So, does he think the threats to the jury are the problem? We're hearing conflicting stories on this, but let me ask you. Uh, one, because I know there are rumors that the jury has been threatened or that, that the jury is concerned it's been threatened. But one thing that did struck me in the note, they asked the judge, would they have to look at the videos? Could they look at the videos in private or would it be in the courtroom? And did they have to say which videos they wanted to see? Now, to me, that indicates they're aware that we're all trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, and that they have concern about that, which to me, I would wish that the jury was concerned only about what's going on in their jury room. And I mean, to me, that indicates an awareness of, and I can hear the people protesting outside. I mean, what do yes. you, if you're an attorney, what do you make of that? I, I'm concerned about that, not only for this case, but for others as well, where we have pressure on the jury. 
You know, the concept should be that we impanel the jury and then we respect and abide by the jury's decision. But that's eroded. In a case like this, we have strong groups on both sides, right? We have Second Amendment people on one side. Right. We have we have uh, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, on the other side. And there's it's, it's mob mentality almost urging these jurors to find one way or another. I think we need to take a look at how we treat juries on these high profile cases and maybe offer them some kind of protections. As far as I know, they don't get anything on this yep. case. They just show up in the morning and they run the gauntlet between the parking lot and the, the press right. and the protesters on both sides. Uh, people taking their pictures. I'm sure everybody knows or many people know where they live. Right. It's a concern. And, right. I, and I wonder maybe if they've, they've come to a verdict and the thing they're they're deliberating is how do we get out of town before uh, something bad happens? <laughs> They're all making their reservations. Well, yeah, I mean, well, what do you I, think about I, the I family? guess I'll give a little pushback that you have the Second Amendment people on one side. I mean, who are the only violent people? It's all been Black Lives Matter, Antifa. I remember we, we were down at a pro-police rally uh, and uh, Black Lives Matter came and they smashed the organizer of, the th- of our thing with a skateboard, cutting his head apart. Um, punched Julie, threatened everybody else. And the Denver Post reported that two sides clash at <laughs> Center Park. Well, there wasn't two sides clashing. It was one <laughs> side beating the shit out of everybody else. But that's how you can say that in a podcast. Huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Both were there. And, uh-huh, you know, it's just equally at fault. And it's not. I mean, the, the Second Amendment people didn't burn down Kenosha. Um, it right. was the Black Lives Matter people. And, and all that through. So um, I, I'm worried it's gone 16 hours. I think that's bad news for the prosecu- uh, for the defense. I think was I was hoping they would come back this morning and and uh, have have acquitted him. I don't think certainly there won't be a general acquittal when you have this much back and forth going on. You may have a compromised verdict. You may have acquittal on some and conviction of others, but it's not going to be. If you thought it was self-defense, I think, as Fred has indicated, it's pretty simple. You didn't have to spend all your time. Well, and here, this I'm just checking organizing. my Twitter. So the jury's just gone home for the day. No verdict today. Um, okay, not, bad. not good news for the uh, for the defense. Well, what do you think? What do you think about that, Fred? Um, and, and again, because I, I will, as I always say, every time I predict what's going to happen, I'm wrong. Um, sure. But I could see this being a situation where we, again, we're trying to read the tea leaves, where the jurors are maybe just going through each of the individual shooting incidents, all of which have their own unique set of circumstances, and deciding one by one. I mean, that might, we tend to look at it as like, well, it's all or nothing, right? Either it's all self-defense or it's all <laughs> not self-defense. But I, could you, I could, would not be shocked, let me put it that way, to... I don't agree with it, but I wouldn't be shocked to see a situation where they said, well, this one maybe wasn't self-defense, but these were, I mean, what do you think about something like that? Where it's not hung because they can't agree on anything, but they're just, they, they are finding different verdicts in different situations. Sure. And in this case, we really have two separate shooting incidents. Right. And the second one, it just, I think self-defense is indisputable in that case. We've got the not only those three coming at him, we've got jump kick man and, and skateboard guy. Although Mr. Binger says a skateboard is, you know, not a lethal weapon. <laughs> no. um, he was using it to save lives. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, um, but that seems like clear self-defense to me on that one. Right. Now as to Rosenbaum, 
that also seems like self-defense to me. You've got this guy. So it's like a mad dog chasing you. I'm going to kill you and uh, going for his gun. You run away and it keeps on chasing you. <laughs> yeah, it keeps on chasing. Now, Kyle didn't know that he just got out of the hospital and evidently it was a mental hospital. Yeah. So presumably he's, he's stabilized by then. Maybe he not. seems he seems stable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, Julia, and that, that's another problem I have with our present legal system. Um, it used to be you could only charge in some states only make one charge. You couldn't pile on lesser included. You could not pile, you could not make 10 counts because jury thinks, OK, we let them go on eight of them. The ninth one, you know, we convicted them on. And you get life without parole. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the fact that they they say some, okay, you get murder for here, but we'll let go of the other two murders. The result is life and life without parole. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. and so it's 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 the system. If you watch it over the years, has has been taken over by the prosecutorial class, um, and and as as really defendants, as Fred knows. Um, really have it stacked against them in most cases or in many cases. Well, most cases, the state has unlimited resources and our clients yeah. have whatever they have. Right. Let yeah. me, one thing too, let me ask you about this though. And, and again, in my covering of trials, and to me, this argues for my theory that they're going through each circumstance, each incident at a time and deciding on it. If they really were at odds right now and they were hung in terms of they weren't agreeing, I would think you would have seen it because jurors don't know that the judge is going to send them back to continue deliberating, right? I would I would, would think if they were really at odds after two days, like you said, 16 some hours of deliberation, I would have thought that we would have seen a note saying, hey, look, we can't agree unanimously. I mean, what do you think about that? Sooner or later, that is going to come. Now, if it didn't come today, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes tomorrow. Yeah. Um, you know, how much more is there to discuss? Right. And maybe they, you know, maybe they have found self-defense on some, not the others. Uh, maybe they haven't found self-defense at all, you know, looking at the elements, whether or not he's acting with the proper criminal intent. Although, you know, that, that rambling closing argument, really on both sides, yeah. I wasn't quite sure what the prosecutor's theory was as this case was going forward or how he was going to get a conviction. Yeah. When, um, um, what's his name? Gage says, Oh yeah, I pointed the gun at him. Yeah. Yeah. That seems and, threatening. That seems like that would well, be a threat. <laughs> right. Well, and then the I, argument I is a, little, a little pushback. I, I thought Mark Richards has sucked this trial. Um, as far as his opening statement on it sucked. Um, he never made objections to evidence, and, and it really was a poor performance. Chikaris did a good job of cross-examining, but I thought his closing argument was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was, I, I thought like it was incredibly closing. effective. Richards, the defense attorney. I thought it was a brilliant closing. You, you didn't like, what did you think of it, Fred? Um, I thought it rambled too much. I thought he really didn't get to the point. You know, I'm not used to two and a half hour closing arguments. We don't get that in Colorado. <laughs> I was going to say, and then the judge said, well, you can go as long. It was way more than that, too. I mean, I've covered a lot of trials where technically I would imagine you could appeal that, but 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 I don't, most attorneys don't. When the judge says two and a half hours, well, and I would think, too, if in two and a half hours you can't make your point, you know, you, it, it's it's probably going to be lost on people. Let me let me ask you this. In terms of going forward. Well, in addition to having to prepare, wait a minute, to having to prepare a two and a half hour closing or two hour one. Uh, or two and a half hour one. I mean, that takes enormous amount of work. Yeah. Enormous mm -hmm. amount of work. 
I mean, I, I, I thought both sides, prosecutors always want longer because they get two bites of the apple. They get the beginning and the end, and the defense only gets the middle, middle portion. Um, but having two and a half hours was painful to listen to, although I enjoyed the rebuttal by the prosecutors, which was just the worst rebuttal I've ever seen. <laughs> Absolutely. Just, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's, I'm, I'm really surprised the jury's out this long. Well, let me ask you this. And so if they come back tomorrow with a no, because I agree with you, I wouldn't be surprised and say we can't agree. Why don't you explain to folks what, at least, and I imagine Wisconsin law is somewhat similar to Colorado, but at least in Colorado, yeah, what happens then? Uh, Well, we eventually we get a note from the jury. It says uh, we're not making any progress. We're deadlocked. What should we do? And then we, uh, whenever there's a question from the jury, then the judge has to get the attorneys together and we come up with with an agreed upon answer to the question. In a situation like that, what the judge is likely to do is talk to the foreperson, bring them in, talk to the foreperson, ask if they've re- reached a verdict on any of the account of the counts, uh, without telling us what the verdict is, yes or no. We've reached a, a verdict on however many counts, and then the judge inquires whether or not they think any further deliberation would be fruitful, or at that. By that first note, he might say, well, I'm going to send you back there, and there's probably a stock instruction that he'll read at the point saying, now, those of you in the majority, you know, consider your positions, and those in the minority, listen to what other people are saying. It's sort of a watered-down instruction where he's knocking their heads together and saying, go back there and see if you can agree on everything. And you're ex- – oh, go ahead. Um, then they'll go back, and then there may be a subsequent note. Okay. saying we're hopelessly deadlocked. Now, at that point, if there are verdicts on any of the counts, then the judge would go ahead and accept those verdicts and then mistry the remaining counts that the jury hung on. I was going to say they typically don't, in my experience, almost always they send them back at least once and say, you know, at least trying. Once. But I don't think I've ever seen them send them back twice. Well, I have. There's, have there's a stock. There's there's one and I forget what it's called, but but which is just tells you more or less will keep you locked up for the rest of your life unless you make the unless you come to a decision. I forget what that instruction is called, but it's one where maybe Fred knows, but it's it, you know it's 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 kind of you better. Well, that was the uh, Allen instruction. Allen instruction, yeah. And yeah, then uh, yeah. now we have a modified Allen instruction. They had to they had to water that down somewhat. Just it lacks the punch of the original. But oh, okay. uh, it did get some, but you never know what's going to happen. I had a trial, two trials ago, a few months ago. Um, they um, said we're locked. And uh, judge says, do you think further deliberation would be fruitful? And there was one woman, she had her arms clenched and she shook her head. No, no, no. But he sent him back. And then an hour later we had, uh, we did have verdicts on all but one count. So okay. they hung on the one count. Now, it was they found Matthew found my client guilty on one count, not guilty on four, and then they hung on the on the sixth. Uh, but she had her one conviction, so the DA was was happy enough. Well, that's, that's, that's the count. sad part about it, you know. It, it, that's a sad part. Well, let me let me ask you then too. Then what would you what what's your prediction? I mean, first I would say this that. Almost always, in my experience, again, verdicts come in on Fridays if they're going at the latest, right? Nobody wants to go right. home and, and yeah. deal with this. Um, what's right. and I know again with a, a caveat, none of us know, um, and I'm always wrong. But what's what's your prediction, and what do you see coming out of this? 
I would predict, well, two days ago, I predicted not guilty on everything, a short verdict. <laughs> um, now I'm thinking that maybe they're hung up on the Rosenbaum okay. count. Maybe. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the law is there, but they're, you, you, in Colorado, if you're the initial aggressor, then you can't rely on self-defense. Right. I don't really think there's much here to demonstrate he's the initial aggressor anywhere. Well, that, 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 that's the provocation. That's the right. provocation right. instruction. Well, if you read the gun. They be... came up with a grainy, phony photo and then claimed that uh, uh, Rittenhouse had lied, that he really did threat you know go around threatening people which is yeah once you do provocation you don't get self-defense so i i thought the judge allowing that was just awful just yeah it was a bit what about the fred would you be worried again is the again we know the jury knows they can hear all the people protesting outside could i mean that would be my concern that the rosenbaum one is sort of a compromised jury or not a compromise Mm. i mean not compromising with the jurors but compromising with please don't attack our homes and our families and shoot us on the way out of the courthouse kind of verdict oh sure sure that uh that maybe they'll give something to both sides yeah that's a possibility that would be a compromise for a new reason you know compromise what to save their own skins yeah yeah that's a mess are you surprised that they're letting them do the protest outside the courthouse where apparently you can hear it if you're in the courtroom i don't know how they can restrict that now, maybe okay. if they would have set up some kind of a protest zone ahead of time, like they did at the Democratic Convention. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe. But uh, it's too late now. Yeah, I guess yeah. you're right. You can't move them. All right. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts? I mean, it's something that, you, you know, people should kind of watch for as they kind of try to read the tea leaves in the case. Well, and I'm wondering about that provocation. Maybe maybe if I'm a juror and I think that him just showing up there like that, right. dangling right. his AR and injecting right. himself into the situation. Maybe they think that's sufficient provocation to overcome the, um, the self-defense. But um, some of those photos, it seems like every third person was armed. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. didn't have the only AR there. No, <laughs> including the guy who he shot at who pointed the gun at him. So, all right, yes. well, we, we will see, Fred. We will see. We got, we've run out of time here. Thank you for your time. Um, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Say hey to All Maureen. Right. And, and how, how can people get a hold of your firm if they'd like to? We are at O'Brien, Thomas, and Bibbick in Lakewood. We're online. Right. They're the best defense attorneys in, 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 the, in the universe, guys, just so for anyone who cares. All right, Fred, thank, you, thank so you. Say hey to Maureen and Dave. We'll talk to you later. All right, I'll take care of your eagle. Okay, thank you. All right. All right. Thank <laughs> Bye. You. Thank you. Well, Chuck, that's kind of interesting then. Fred, I mean, who knows much more about this than I do, expected a quick verdict and and sees it, as you kind of did, as sort of concerning. I was like, well, I don't know. There's a lot to go over. And you're like, no, maybe this could not be, at least for people like me and you who think that he's not guilty, not a good sign. Uh, I I don't think it's a good sign. The only good sign is that the judge uh, was indicating that, that he plans to really let the prosecution have it once the verdicts are in which may be good for uh, Rittenhouse. All right. All right. Well, listen, we're going to have to go. Thank you to um, Ben Murray. You guys, I encourage you to go read that that study. It's, it's, it's astonishing. Thank you to Fred Bibbick for joining us. Thank you to Thomas for running the board. Thank you to everybody on Zoom and for listening. You can catch all of our shows at chuckandjulie.com. Um, you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can become 
um, excuse me, a patron of the show there too. You can I mean, call us at home. You can, you know, we'll come over and give you a dinner. I mean, just whatever you like to do. <laughs> hey, thank you, everybody. Keep an eye, uh, as Peter Boyle says, keep an eye on the sky. I don't know what made me just think of that. Um, but we will see you all on Party Friday. Have a great rest Party of your week. Friday. Take care, everybody. <laughs>